Hi everyone, welcome to True Crime Predators with your host, me, Kathy Cassidy. I am a clinical forensic therapist and today's topic is going to be on pedophiles, one in particular, and really highlight grooming and how it relates to sexual predators and how they psychologically and systematically build up their build up their behavior to prey on the victim. So I was working in the jail as a therapist and I at this point had only been doing um intakes for the the uh new arrestees in the booking area and meeting with various inmates who just had kind of typical issues of being incarcerated, you know, such as like missing their family, needing to contact their attorney, stress issues within the pod they were being housed in, those sorts of things. And I always had a list that was given to me by my supervisor each day where I started having to go into the special needs pod which is where um, the inmates were housed who had more of like the high-profile crimes, um, sex offenders, people who were severely mentally ill, basically inmates that would be prey within the jail. So even within the jail system, as I'm sure many of you know from watching TV because it's really opened up the eyes of the world to how jail works and even the prisons, um, there is definitely a hierarchy within and a prison justice system, so to speak, that takes place. So sex offenders, high-profile people, severely mentally ill, those kind of people would definitely be preyed upon and potentially hurt badly or their things would be taken from them or even killed if they were in general population. So the this area of the particular jail I worked in was called the special needs unit. And um, so one day I had on my list that I needed to work with, uh, do an, uh, an assessment with an inmate who was specifically charged with a child sexual abuse. And I'm sure that many of the inmates that I've worked with had that, but it wasn't their charge. So just because someone has done that doesn't necessarily mean that's what they're being charged with. It's just like your neighborhood. You know, people, sometimes we know that someone's a sex offender, but they haven't been arrested or charged with it. You know, we know they've molested their niece or nephew or whatever, it's the same in jail. Just because someone's charge is something doesn't mean they haven't done that other things in their life. So anyways, I knew this guy was, this was my very first uh, time working with a specific child sex offender. That that's, that's what his charge was. So I remember very clearly, this was quite a long time ago, uh you know, that I I was really nervous about doing this interview or assessment 
because I, I really didn't know how I would react to this person. Uh, I hadn't seen him yet. I didn't know anything about him other than that he was a male, middle-aged, uh, because I had his date of birth and what the charge was. And mind you, you know, prior to this, I had only worked with really victims of abuse for about eight years in psychiatric hospitals inpatient. So I saw, um, not firsthand because I wasn't, you know, part of the abuse, but I saw these people, the patients coming in fresh out of the abuse and how sometimes fresh out, sometimes years after, but many times that was what they were dealing with. And the impact of sexual abuse really, I mean, the world now has a much better grasp on how it affects people. But as a brand new therapist, for when I first started in the hospital, I was just really, my breath was taken away so many times. And I really lost a lot of faith in humanity and just um, the people that we live amongst. When I would see these kids, sometimes as little kids, like five years old was the youngest we would take all the way up to adults. So watching people, you know, try to work through their abuse or coming in at the highest level of their crisis and sexual abuse being the core issue, you know, I had a very, very strong heart for that that specific topic and population being victims of sexual abuse. So I really, I was very nervous uh, because I also, you know, to be really honest, like even as a therapist, you know, you were trained to have the game face, but we do have obviously true personal feelings and I definitely do. I mean, I learned how to rein them in as my career went on, but um, I, you know, it's still... There's there's definitely a component of anger when you're working with the victims. You know, you want, as a human, not as a therapist, you want things, you want really severe consequences to the person, to the perpetrator. When you see kids coming in smearing feces and just completely out of their mind, pretty much. So I sat there looking. I remember my office was right next to the special needs pod. And I was standing, I had my back on the door in my office, and I literally said a prayer to God and asked God to please give me the strength not to uh, want to, like, really hurt this person and for me to remain professional and objective. Because I, oh, I mean, of course, we're around sexual predators and we don't even know it. We don't always, and probably way more than we realize, we don't know what people are doing sexually. Just because we think we know them well does not mean that we know what they're doing in their bedrooms or in their cars or when they're alone at night or when they're in the bath. Like, you you just never know. And this is what working with offenders really taught me. Because someone holds a certain position in the world, being a judge, an attorney, a teacher, homeless, uh, you know, the husband of the neighborhood that everyone loves, the wife that nobody would suspect, the babysitters who are teenagers. We literally have no idea what people are doing sexually and what they're thinking because 
Most people don't share that, especially when it's like a deviant thought or behavior, meaning deviant in off of the norm or what society expects people to do sexually. So people aren't going to walk around saying, you know, that they they really love having sex with dogs or, you know, they are sincerely and genuinely attracted to three-month-old babies. Like, they don't tell people that. And we don't find out as a society until there's a catastrophic disaster and the damage is done and now we're looking at consequences. That's what I really learned from working with sex offenders throughout my career. Uh, Of course, I didn't really realize that as I was learning and new in the field Because even after you graduate school, like that only teaches you so much. You really learn. I really learned 95% of what I learned from working face-to-face with these sex offenders. And it takes time to build up and have done many interviews, many assessments, many sessions with them to really see the patterns. And um, so this was one of my first sex offenders. So I was a little bit uneasy about how I would react. Okay, so I go in to the uh, special needs unit and I have to uh, walk up to the correctional officer and show him my list of who I'm looking for. And I'm doing that and we're in the middle of the day room, which is where all the offenders, all the inmates, sorry, not offenders, all the inmates are sitting that that have free time they were all sitting out there doing various things. You know, they're playing cards with each other. Some of them are drawing. There's like several tables, concrete tables that are, you know, built into the ground. And there's probably maybe 10, 12 tables. I don't remember, but a handful of tables. And they can hear every single thing going on. And believe me, they are listening no matter what (laughs) you think they're doing or not doing. They are listening to every single word that's being said. And even if their ears can't hear, they're reading lips or they're trying to he- to read your lips so that everybody knows what's going on in the pod all the time with the staff and with each other. So I walk in, I ask for this particular inmate. The guys that are out in the day room are sitting there and the officer says, oh yeah, you know, he's upstairs. So he walks me upstairs to get him and he's not upstairs. So he starts looking around the day room where we were. We come back down, and the inmate was sitting probably 10 feet from where we were. He he literally heard the entire thing. He knew we were looking for him, and he just sat there drawing. So I didn't recognize that for what it was, but now I recognize that as that was a power move on his part, which is fine. You know, they do what they do. So I... um I see him, and I'm first a little disoriented that he just sat there listening to the whole thing. I thought it was rude, but again, later I realized what it was, the control thing. And then he was uh, he stood up with his drawing materials, and he was very pleasant. He was kind of quiet, and he said hi, and I said, let's, you know, we went over to another area that was a little more private, so the other inmates couldn't hear, and I... I just remember, um, I don't even think I remember, but hindsight, my my entire self, my regular personal self, it was like a, 
compartmentalizing that I didn't expect. Um, I completely fell into a different mode of my brain that I never had, which was where I was able to completely separate how I feel and think, which is, you know, important as a therapist to be able to do. I just wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it with a pedophile who was, you know, in jail for that reason. It was really disturbing, but I was, and I, and I was really grateful in hindsight. Uh, so we sat down, he had a notebook of, uh, filled with sketches that he did. And he was an unbelievably talented, uh, artist, I guess that wasn't his job in life, but he really was a great artist. So this guy is middle-aged, like I said, tall, dark hair. He was uh, Caucasian. He seemed like he was um, introverted, you know, kind of a little bit on the, like, uh, no real emotion. Like when he talked, his voice didn't really go. He didn't show any, um, like, animation, no facial expressions, no voice expression. He was just very flat. And pretty matter-of-fact. So we started talking, and then at that time, um, I did a YouTube video on the same topic, but I wanted to repeat it for the podcast. I felt like I had this... I felt like it was a bit of a gift, that I had his brain on a platter, and that's how I chose to to probably cope um, as a human, um, that I was able to ask and try to find out what in you know what in the world happened in this person's life that would ever lead them to sexually abuse a child and so i did fully use that opportunity and i was fortunate enough to have an inmate in front of me that was very open and told me everything at least I think everything. I shouldn't say that. He told me what I felt like was everything. Um, who knows what the actual truth was. So essentially, here's how, here's how the story goes. He was married at the time, uh, had a wife that he had been married to for many years. He had two daughters that were, I don't remember, they were under the age of 10. I do remember that. He worked actually as a pizza delivery driver. And I don't recall if he ever had like a an established career or if he was a job hopper. But I know at the time of his crime, he was delivering pizzas. And um, they did, like I said, I don't know if I said it. They had a home. They had two cars. I don't know what the wife's job was, but they obviously earned enough money to have a home and do these things, have these things. Uh, So he had lived in the home for quite a long time, and they had a neighbor that moved in, and the neighbor had a teenage boy. In his early teens, I believe he was 13 or 14 years old. Um, I think he was 14. And so the inmate would go out in the backyard and do yard work and do whatever he would do in the yard. He would spend a decent amount of time out there gardening, planting, cleaning it up, just caring for everything, and in his garage, those sorts of things. Well, he noticed that the teenage boy 
So this is part of, uh, you know, actually a sex offender's kind of thought process when they are grooming. It's almost like I would compare this process on a slower level and a more calculated level to a lion or um, some very strong animal. When they think of like a National Geographic show that you see, when they spot their prey, it's like you see something and their eyes light up. It's like then, I'm snapping in case you missed it, they notice there's, there's an opportunity. That's how a pedophile, some pedophiles work, this one in particular. It's like, oh, ding, 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 there is a potential prey. So the eyes light up, and just like kind of a lion, they watch. They don't just go jumping in and attack. They watch, and they walk around, and they sneak around, and they're low, and they try to blend in. That is very much how the human pedophile goes about preying on their victim. And then when an animal feels like it's a good time and it's safe and the uh, victim or the prey isn't expecting it, they come in for the pounce and they kill them. So I wrote a book called Emotional Homicide because that's what I compare it to. Um, so this this inmate, he starts with the, the, the whole grooming process, which is identifying a potential victim and what he did was he took his time and he would watch from his backyard and very inconspicuously, you know, he's not there with binoculars or anything. There was a fence between them, but the fence wasn't so tall that you could still see each other's faces. So he, the inmate, would notice that this boy, the neighbor boy, would be outside alone and he was outside a lot and he noticed and honed in on the fact that he was alone. So over time, you know, he would just wave to him real, you know, casually, a gentle smile, hi, and that was it. And he would do that for days and days. In the meantime, the inmate and his wife made a point to be friendly with the parents. Not too friendly, but would speak to them. Time went by and everyone was friendly. Nothing was happening, but the inmate started fantasizing about the boy in his brain sexually. And this is like um, a very big time in the inmate's brain. It's almost like um, someone's like an addict, like say an alcoholic, when they start thinking about alcohol and then they know they're going to have a drink that night. And this, it's almost probably a surge of dopamine in the brain because they're anticipating the buildup, the ritual, the routine to get to the alcohol. And when they get to the alcohol, the satisfaction that comes with it. And then the guilt later, but pedophiles rarely have the guilt. Um, but it's that same system, that same thing of the brain working in that calculated manner. So he was starting to fantasize. And that's you know, that's a step in the direction of what offenders go through. So as he's fantasizing, you know, he's he's waiting, he's planning slowly, building the trust of the neighbor by being this inconspicuous, friendly guy. Then it, over time, he started chatting with him lightly. How's your day going? 
and the boy would respond and he was really very shy but friendly you know a nice kid not like a rebellious teen and you know the inmate over time starts asking him a little more about his life and the boy because what the inmate told me is he knew eventually he came to the conclusion that this boy was lonely and he also came to the conclusion that his parents weren't very involved in his life he made that um he came up with that theory just based on the amount of time that the child was alone or the assumption i should say so he felt like you know that's a great that's a great choice for for a predator because nobody's really paying attention or at least they think. So he starts inviting the boy over to the yard to help out with yard work, and he would pay him. You know, if you do the leaves, uh, you know, I'll pay you whatever amount of money. And while the kid would, would come over, do the leaves, do the raking, help with the gardening, he would talk with him. So now he's building this relationship with the child that's also attached to the child earning money, and of course a teenager, most teenagers like money. And then he, at the same time, is getting to know him. And the inmate was so insightful um, and aware and really vocal with telling me what he was doing. And I felt, you know, again, hindsight, you know, I'm not in this now 18, 19 years, that was the best first pedophile that I could have asked for in my career because he alone taught me so much about how the the pedophile brain works and he was very open that he was a pedophile and he actually referred to himself as a pederist which I never heard of that word even in school so I would come home from work and just study all the things he would tell me about he also taught me about uh a group of people called NAMBLA, which I had never heard of. And if you guys have never heard of, it stands for North American Man-Boy Love Association. So I went home and read all about it and was blown away that this is like a real group of people, a huge group of people in the world, not just in our country of the U.S., who genuinely and sincerely believe that legislation and laws should be passed to allow men to have sexual relationships with boys because they think that it's helpful in their development and it teaches them about love. And that's like famous pedophile thinking that they're teaching um, when they're actually sexually abusing. But so... The inmate talked to me about Nambla and that he was a part of Nambla, and he told me he was a pederist, which is a very specific category of pedophiles where they're only interested in um, kids between the ages of, I, it's prepubescent, it's like 11 and 13, I don't know if any of you know the actual ages out there, but it's right in there, it's prepubescent, it's not toddlers, it's not children they are children but it's right before they hit puberty they don't like hair on the genitalia 
they still like everything looking childlike, but right before they hit puberty. Very specific. And um, so I was obviously like, oh, my Jesus. Like, I can't even, like, I just have never, ever heard of any of the things this guy is talking about. And I really studied in school. This stuff is not covered in school, and it should be because, you know, it's just uh, very big in the community of pedophiles and sex offenders. So he he told me, you know, that that was something he was very engaged in actively. Of course, his wife had no idea. And um, so he's he's grooming this boy, and he is building... It's complete manipulation of the brain for the child because the child is obviously thinking this guy is paying attention to me. He's getting attention that he needs in life by another man. So he's getting guidance. He's also earning money and being responsible. And then, you know, a friendship builds and this child is learning to trust this guy. The parents were learning to trust him because of all the things he was doing. The pedophile, this one in particular, and many of them not only groom the victim, but they groom, it's called like collateral damage. They groom the parents. They groom the community. They manipulate everyone around them into believing that they're whatever persona they want you to think they are, like the youth pastor, the sporty guy, the family guy. Um, but that's all fake and that they work hard to manipulate those around them. Sorry, my dog. Sorry, she's going to be in here because I can't stop at this late in the game. Um, so he, oh goodness, I'm so sorry. So he was doing that to society, to the neighbors, to the parents, and was able to gain the trust of them until the point where, you know, this guy, I'm shutting the door to block her out. This guy went from, you know, saying hi to paying him to do jobs to getting to know him. And mind you, I want to also, this is super important. When he's getting to know the the child, he's not doing it in a in a way that regular people get to know him. It's like a file in their memory. He's asking specific questions and doing it in a way that doesn't feel invasive, but he is absolutely putting a file of everything this kid says in his memory. He is making sure to note his favorite food, his favorite color, how he how he acts about certain things, the language that he uses who his friends are, who his friends aren't, how, everything about his family. And it, he's doing this. It's just like, um, it's like a war. You know, when you go, when countries go to war, they collect intel. And this is basically what a predator does. It's intel. It's not genuine. It's not out of care or love. It's intel. And it will be used in every aspect to exploit the victim. And that's what he did. So 
Eventually, he's inviting the child into the house for lemonade because it's hot out. But that's not what he was doing. It's They do things covertly. They're making it appear to be something it isn't. He wasn't. He doesn't genuinely care that this child might be thirsty because he's hot. He is systematically working this kid's brain to get him comfortable talking to him. Now he's getting him comfortable coming in the house. Now he's getting him comfortable sitting in the in his on his couch in his living room, being around him. So there's a there is literally. I, sorry, I keep saying that word in this podcast. I don't know a better word for that. Every move they make is calculated. And that's the really disgusting part of it. It's so calculated. And the child, the victim, is a victim on so many levels. It's not only the actual sexual abuse. It is the the grooming process is so destructive to the victim because they... The victim, with every, they have every right to feel that this person is genuine and they care about them. And these predators do it to people who really do need that attention. And then they drop the bomb. And that's why I call it emotional homicide. Because this person, the child, the victim is sometimes devastated when it's in a case like this. So this inmate builds this very lengthy relationship with this child. It was, I believe it was well over a year before he actually went, before he actually put his hands on him sexually. But before he did that, so the lemonade, the snacks, all this stuff, the parents are now getting comfortable, more grooming of the parents. His wife is getting comfortable, his daughters, everybody's getting comfortable with this child now being around more, no one sees it as concerning. Again, purposeful. So what the inmate started doing, he said, is he wouldn't even sit on the same couch with him. He would sit on the chair. Then eventually he would sit on the same couch, but far away from him. Then eventually he would have him sit, he would have the boy, like, oh, come here, he'd pat the couch, come sit closer to me, show me what you're reading. Not just sit closer to me so I can be a creep and sexually molest you. That He would make a reason for it. Like, we're reading a magazine, we're doing something that he would find things so he needed to be close. Oh, sit, come sit over here, show me. So now the child is making his own decision to come and sit next to him. It's no longer the inmate pursuing the physical space that's closing in. So now the child gets comfortable, and then the next thing you know, they're kind of just hanging out, sitting closer together. Then he said he knew he started like he would put his hand on his shoulder. So now he's grooming the child for touch, and it's a touch that's not sexual abuse, and this is also part of it not like the animal kingdom. He would touch his shoulder in a way that didn't hurt or confuse him in any way. It would come off as something that's affectionate and endearing or supportive, encouraging, those kind of things. From there, so he's getting the kid used to it, then he would touch his leg. And he knew when he started touching his leg that it was very close to the time that he was going to start becoming sexual. 
And so what he he said is he knew if when he touched the child's leg, if the child reacted in a way, a certain way, he would know if it was basically a green light, if he could go further. So say the kid would have jumped up and left. He would have stopped. So he's testing the waters. Is this victim going to work out for me? And this in particular child didn't do anything when he touched his leg. I mean, we don't know what the child was feeling or thinking, but, you know, the way sex offenders or this specific pedophile and many pedophiles, their thinking distortions are almost delusional. Well, many of them are delusional. They view certain behaviors as a green light that the child would like to be sexually assaulted. And that's truly what they believe. Um, And that's why I call it delusional. So uh, after a few times of touching his leg and then kind of rubbing his leg shortly after, he did um, ask the child to perform oral sex, which is, you know, oral rape. And the child did it. And then he asked the child, asked, he made a point to ask if it was okay to do it to the child. And the child agreed. And then that went on for some period of time until one day the child stopped coming over and he didn't know what was going on. He was a little bit, he said, very minimally concerned that the child told his parents. And I asked him why he wasn't like really nervous about it. And he he felt real secure in his position that he had so much on the kid that the child would never tell. Um, because the child, you know, he in in the offender's mind, the child willingly participated in it, and he was sure to remind him of that. So that's why he felt not really worried that he, the kid would tell. Well, he was kind of, so a couple days went by, he didn't see the child outside, he didn't, the child wasn't coming over like normal, and then he started getting a little bit more nervous, and sure enough, um, the doorbell rang, and the police were there. The child did end up telling his parents what was going on, thank God, Um, but he already had endured so much emotional and physical our emotional and sexual abuse that, you know, he was, I'm not sure what condition he was in, but I'm sure it wasn't good. And the parents pressed charges and they, and the inmate actually admitted to everything the kid said, which is also very unusual. Um, so he was look. he was in jail being charged, pled guilty and waiting for his time at the, at the point I met him to be transferred to the prison so that is that, and, uh, you know, just be careful, you guys, who, who your kids are around and who you trust, because really remember that we do not have any idea what people like sexually, and to, you know, leave our kids with anyone, just do it with really great caution. Um, but that's it for this episode, and I am you know, hopeful that you guys got something out of it. I I know it's not the brightest of topics, but I do these so that you guys can learn a little bit about 
the stuff that I've learned from the inmates and how they operate and the things they've done. All right, you guys, be safe and thanks so much for listening.